Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to California. Well, we've officially made it to the West Coast, all the way from where we started in the East. It's been a bit of a meandering journey so far, but I hope you've enjoyed the sights we've seen along the way. This week we find ourselves in the Golden State. While there are plenty of tales of dark deeds, mysterious happenings, and an almost endless selection of hauntings to choose from, we're going to venture away from the noise and chaos of the big cities and take a drive down the winding, scenic roads of Big Sur. If you've never been, Big Sur is a rugged, sparsely populated section of the California coast, between San Francisco and Los Angeles, framed on one side by the Santa Lucia Mountains, and on the other side by the Pacific Ocean. It's known for its incredible seaside views and amazing state parks that are popular destinations for the outdoorsy types. It's an idyllic setting for a hike, or to do a little camping. But venture out into the vast wilds of Big Sur to enjoy the peace and solitude, especially around dusk and dawn, and you may find yourself far less alone than you had planned. Since the time of the Spanish conquistadors, 
The Santa Lucia Mountains have been known as home to something darker and far more foreboding than the typical wildlife that roams central California. The Spanish called them Los Vigilantes Oscuros, but most of us refer to them only as the Dark Watchers. So, let's say you're out for a relaxing day of hiking in the rugged tranquility of Big Sur. After a day of winding through trails, weaving between rocks and giant redwoods, your muscles ache and you're looking forward to getting back to the comforts of your car, followed by a shower and a nice hot meal. The sun has started to dip toward the horizon, and the sky is tinged with vibrant shades of orange and red. Suddenly, though, you pause in your step. As cliché as it sounds, a feeling washes over you that you can only describe as the sensation that you're not alone, that you're being watched. You gaze around at the trees and boulders nervously, but just as you're about to shake the feeling off as stupid, you see it. A figure, impossibly tall and impossibly black, silhouetted against the ridge above you. It's wearing a long, dark cloak and seems to lean heavily on a staff or walking stick. You can't help but think of the classic shape of the Grim Reaper, or at least if it wasn't for the large-brimmed hat on its head, that is. Based on its distance from you and the features of the landscape surrounding the figure, you can tell it's inhumanly tall. And it stands perfectly still, not even its cloak so much as billows in the breeze. Even though you can't make out any discernible features, it appears to be staring out to sea. But somehow, you also know, without a doubt in your mind, it's watching you, too. It sets your nerves on edge, and you glance around to make sure there's no one else lurking nearby. But when you look back at the ridge, it's empty. The figure is gone. And you're left with nothing but a racing heart and a knot of unease in the pit of your stomach. You make record time back to your car. That's more or less how a typical encounter with the Dark Watchers goes. And there are no lack of accounts on various online forums. But random people on the internet, as much of a reliable source as they are, aren't the only ones who've experienced these dark, giant entities. Probably the most famous mention of the Dark Watchers comes from American author John Steinbeck. In his short story, Flight, about a teenage boy who flees into the Santa Lucias to escape being charged with murder, protagonist Pepe receives a warning from his mother before later encountering the creatures himself. When thou comest to the high mountains, she says, if thou seest any of the dark-watching men, Go not near them, nor try to speak to them, and forget not thy prayers. Poet Robinson Jeffers, another native of these parts, also wrote about the Watchers, referring to them as forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not. Whether these dark Watchers are a trick of the eye, or some kind of inhuman creatures, these huge dark entities clearly leave a lasting impression on whoever they encounter. Now I think it's time we found some tall tales of our own. 
Our first story for the evening comes from Gordon B. White. Gordon has lived in North Carolina, New York, and the Pacific Northwest. He is a 2017 graduate of the Clarion West Writing Workshop, and his fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in venues such as Daily Science Fiction, Not One of Us, and the Bram Stoker Award-winning anthology Borderlands 6. Gordon also contributes reviews and interviews to various outlets including Nightmare, Lightspeed, and Hell Notes. You can find him online at gordonbwhite.com or on Twitter at Gordon B. White. Children of the Night, listen with me to Gordon B. White's We Eat Dirt and Sleep and Wait, a Tales to Terrify original. Outside, the worms are singing. The little ones are piping like songbirds in the black dirt packed against the buried house's windows. Others, much larger, cry like whales in the distance, and their calls reverberate through the earth until even the distant ridge of snow-capped mountains trembles like a jaw. Here in the house, deep in the soil, the timbers groan, beneath the worm song, as the boy and the old woman wait. In his bed, nestled in the folds of peeling ears of mushrooms, the blind boy trembles. He presses deeper into the pillows of mold sprouting in the living room's corner, as if trying to push himself into the safety of the floor. The old woman enters from the kitchen, illuminated by the dim green glow of a lemonade pitcher that she has packed with luminescent soil. The boy falls still as he listens to the old woman pick her way around the furniture's quivering shadows and to his side. She rests a stained hand against his soft pink skin. Oh, my sweet one, she whispers. You mustn't cry when the worms are just outside. We don't want them to find us, do we? The boy's white eyes roll towards her voice, and his calloused hands, devoid of nails and pads worn down, squirm around her wrist. His fingers crawl up her arm and towards her face, but she pulls away just before he reaches the wrinkles and creases that cut back from the corners of her parched lips. She places the lantern pitcher on the table and sits in the chair beside him. My sweet one, she says again. Let me tell you a story to keep you calm. It's one of your favorites. There was an old woman who lived in a house with her husband. Their cozy home crowned a cul-de-sac of fine, sturdy structures nestled among emerald lawns. Although the two of them lived alone, the neighboring houses were filled to the walls with children and parents and pets all busy with their own lives. They had the common decency, however, to smile and wave as they passed by the old couple. Every day, like a little clockwork, 
the old man would run his pushmower across the lawn, blades over blades, trimming down the tips and then raking them up. He did it in the spring, when pink blooming brains of dogwood moped along the corners of the yard. He did it in the summer, when the smell of neighbor's charcoal lit the evenings. He did it in the fall, chewing over fire-colored leaves, and in the winter, too, churning the snow. Every day, like a little cuckoo in her window, the old woman read her storybooks and watched her husband walking back and forth, back and forth. It was their little routine, and their lawn was their point of pride. Then, one day, the husband's heartstrings snapped. By the time the ambulance arrived, he was a delicate shade of robin's egg blue. Then the old woman still lived in a house, but she lived alone. After the funeral, and the first few days of we're sorry casseroles, no one came to her porch or knocked on her door. Inside the empty house, she slept on just one side of a too-big bed. Groaning timbers followed her small steps up and down the stairs. Outside, the grass still grew. Taller and stronger, it grew darker and heavier from the deep black soil. With no one to trim it, the blades grew thick and high until they reached the bottom of her window. Higher still, it grew until only her tiny silver head rose above the stalks like a dandelion's blowball. In one stiff breeze, it seemed, she might blow away. The neighbors to her left told their teenage son to ask her if she needed help, but he didn't. The neighbors to their right said they would check on her, but never quite settled on when. Like a string of paste pearls melting one by one, their pretense at concern fell away, and the neglect slid around the neighborhood. Yet the old woman's lawn kept growing. Eventually, it covered the house. The wind tented great fescues like praying hands over the roof. The fleshy tendrils of extraordinary bluegrass pressed against her windows and doors until it was as if the house was a face whose mouth and eyelids were being pinched closed. The neighbors merely stared from their windows. If the old woman needed help, surely all of them said she would have asked. Since she hadn't, they told each other, she must enjoy being alone. It was easier for everyone this way. And then the house sank into the lawn. As it sank, pulled down deeper by its weight and the deep roots of the grass, the old woman lay on her floor with her head in the fireplace. Through the creosote-choked flue, she watched her one pinch of blue sky shrink until it was finally eclipsed. The tears she cried traced pale paths across her soot-stained cheeks until they, too, were buried. And above the house, the hole closed up, and the grass grew back. Only the empty lawn was left where the house had stood. That problem solved itself, the neighbors said, but it was never quite true. Every summer since then, when the nights are heavy as deep black soil, all the lawns in the neighborhood sing like cuckoos. Each blade of grass weeps every time it's trimmed. Now the old woman still lives in the house, deeply buried. She has adapted, though, as best she can. For drinking, a taproot pierces the ceiling and drips into her mouth. 
Outside her window are minerals rich enough to eat one muddy handful at a time. At night, she reads her storybooks by the soil light and dreams of burning dragon bones for coal. She dreams of witches and elves and sweet little children. Without her stories, she would have gone quite mad. Until one day, there was a knock at the door. In the thick night outside the walls, the worm calls still echo. The cries roll through empty pockets and reflect from stained quartz obelisks, seeming to come from every side. Where the front yard had been, but which is now black soil, the worms are singing. From the garden patch that is now black soil, the worms are singing. From the blue squint of sky above the chimney, that the leaves of grass choked off and is now black soil, the worms are singing. In the underground house, the boy stirs in his fungal bed and whimpers again. The old woman opens the window and scoops a handful of dirt from the wall of earth outside. Palm caked, she presses it to the boy's mouth, but he turns away from the offer. The boy moans again, as if calling out to the darkness but the woman shushes him. Oh, my sweet one, the old woman says, you need not fear. We are together. She trembles, though, as her tongue flicks out, testing the air. I'll tell you another, if you will just keep calm. There was a lonely young boy, almost a baby, truly, who lived in a house deep in the woods. His father drove a tow truck, and his mother did nothing but her nails, so all day he was left to his own devices, playing in the mud of the yard. He pulled back flat rocks and wondered at the pillbugs beneath. He dug with sticks and stones, humming to himself as he did. In the evening, his mother attacked his hands with bristle brushes, and his little fingers squirmed chafed pink from the scrubbing. On some nights, however, when the moon was full and the clouds were thin, they all packed up the truck and headed down to the sump. On those nights, his parents' blood was high and the conditions were best for squirm-hooking. Were there once other more reverent names for the squirms? Surely. But the few invocations to the father-mothers of the fragrant, soft darkness remained as skip-rope rhymes or half-joking prayers for fertility in the field or the bed. The squirms the boy's parents knew were paltry things, almost babies, truly, no bigger than an arm, and little like the leviathan annelids that once ground boulders to loam through their gizzard and crop. The boy's parents took great pleasure in tormenting these degenerate things. The squirm-hooking site wasn't far from the road, but to the little boy, being next to the pit was like waiting to be swallowed by a whole other world. The sump's lips were soft, but his father would back the tow truck right up to the edge. The taillights smeared the pit of sludge below, painting it red where the ground was weak, and wet and strange things crawled. On those wild nights, the muck shook with their singing. It was no place for a child, clearly, so the boy was left in the truck to press his face to the glass. Down came the truck's boom, 
and the boy's father would spool out the hook and the cable with enough slack from the winch to reach a good depth. Then they dressed the hook with whatever road-killed carcass was handy and stuffed it with rocks. They chucked it over the edge. Down the hook sank with its ponderous bait, down through the loose soil where the baby squirms played. The boy's parents waited. Then a little one would strike. The line would go taut, and the boy's mother would shriek, and his father would laugh, and the winch would groan in protest. With the cable suckered by the squirm's front skin, the creature would writhe like a single great muscle. Once fully extracted from the earth, it grunted and squealed as it flailed in the air. The boy's mother and father were only casual brutes, and there was neither method nor art in the way they would fall on the squirms. A tire iron, a crowbar, work boots, a rock. They pounded until its skin peeled back and the pulp of its ruin spoiled the air. Crying, the boy would beat his fists on the back window, but it only drove them into further frenzy. Afterward, they would ride back to the house, the car sweet with sweat and the rotten smell of squirm innards. Many nights, the boy was thankful to be sent to bed without supper. Then, one night, a big one struck. It hit the bait with a great yank, and the line sang out, and the sump's earthen lip gave way. The tow truck tilted and sank into the ground. The last thing the boy saw was his parents gasping and blinking in the headlights as he was pulled below. Was the look on their face one of horror? Of joy? Then the boy was gone, a passenger in a truck pulled through the darkness in the giant squirm's toe. Every push and contraction took him further, further, further down. Then the line broke, and the great worm pressed on, and the boy was left in silence. With the back window cracked, he pushed into the moist hold of aerated soil. There was barely enough space to breathe. There was just barely enough for the boy to push forward a little more. He cried at first, but then the worms cried back. Then they circled back, and then circled around. In a few more passes, the crying turned to singing, and in a few more after that, they all sang the same song. So the little boy followed them. Was it days, months, or even years that the boy crawled in the mushy wake of the great mother-fathers as they pistoned through their mucus-slick tunnels? The boy pawed at the dirt until his nails peeled back from their beds and his fingertips wore down smoother than clay. Pressing face forward, he wriggled on until his eyes were stained soil green, then were bleached, and then gone. Over time, he inched through the fields of calcite stars, like a naked and slow-flying comet. At the forest of deep roots, he picked his way through the clearings, left by the gargantuan worms. He drew moisture and nutrients from the hummus of the great squirm's rich feces. What adventures the little boy had in the great squirm's trail. Until one day, the plates beneath the earth all shifted, and the boy and the squirms were pulled apart. No matter how much he sang— and then cried and pressed on alone in the darkness, he found nothing, until he came across the underground house. Even though he could not see it, he felt the walls, 
and the eaves resisting his vibrations as he crawled. He knocked on the door. Then the old woman let the boy in, the old woman says. She let him sleep there. She fed him. She told him stories at night. He owed her so much and so wanted to stay with her that when she told him to be quiet, he was a good little boy. Do you understand? In the deep house, however, the story has not calmed the boy. He still writhes beneath the pummeling songs of the great creatures beyond the walls. In a spasm, he calls out and makes as if to rise, but the old woman pushes down his forehead. She slides her other hand across his mouth, stifling his cries. Quiet, she says. Must I tie you down? The boy thrashes, but the woman presses down on him until he is almost smothered and her dirt-stained tongue clucks above his blank eyes. The air is cloyingly sweet. What if I tell you one more story, she asks. It's one you've never heard, but should keep you still. The blind boy whimpers once more, but then is quiet. Down here, with windows of black soil and night's dirt packed around the walls, there are no sights to see. The only things they have are stories and time. The old woman licks her lips and begins. There was another old woman who lived in a house next door to a little boy and a wicked young girl. The little girl gossiped and spun lies like a silkworm. She called the old woman a witch, which wasn't quite true, not yet. Like all old women, she had been young once upon a time. She had once had a husband and a son, although tragedy took the latter and the former left soon after. So she moved into the little house, where she told herself stories about how sweet it would be to have her little boy back. He would be happy to see her, of course, and she would be so pleased that she could just eat him up. Once reunited, no more would they part. Despite her best intentions, it must be admitted that all those years alone had made the old woman loose in her manners. Hungry for company, she would stare from her windows at the passing children, waiting for them to stray onto her lawn. As soon as a little foot touched the first of the grass blades, she would burst out like a trapdoor spider, framed by the tendrils of her frayed, yellowed hair. That was the game the children played, and they called it Dance on Your Grave. They would try to draw the witch out and then run away. Laughing and screaming, it was all great fun. Then she caught one. It was a very early spring day, just on the tail tip of winter, that the old woman caught the young girl's brother. Her fingernails were brittle like rotten teeth in wrinkled gums, and when they sunk into the brother's jacket, they bit through and held on. No matter how much the children screamed, the old woman held on. Come with me, the old woman shrieked as she pulled. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me show you I've changed. Was she confused? Was she telling the truth? The wicked little girl did not pause to ask, but instead lashed out to defend her brother. Her wild fist caught the side of the old woman's mouth. The soft old skin tore. Everyone froze. The tatter of flesh flapped for a moment. Then the old woman quietly pressed it back to her face. 
dancing like a millipede, she skittered back across the lawn. After that, the wicked little girl told more stories, that the old woman dug holes like a wrinkly beetle, tunneling under her yard so that she could spring up from below, that she wore a mask and tasted children's fear and loved it. Most of these were lies, of course. The girl told her parents, too, but they didn't want to believe her. A problem neighbor is a problem, but a problem child is worse. She was lucky, they said, that the police hadn't been called. For a week, the girl was grounded and sat by her window. Despite her vigil, nothing seemed to move at the old woman's house. The windows were empty and dark beneath the flat gray sky. Then, one night, without warning, it snowed. It was a very late snow, and the sound of the soft, wet flakes tapping against the window drew the girl from her slumber. It was so cold that the wooden floor prickled her feet, and the house's ribs groaned like a ship. Below her, cold and cruel things swam in the depths. Was it a sound, perhaps, that drew her from her room? A displaced pressure in the air that pulled her down the hall? Did she follow clouds of steam that rose from the floorboard's cracks, as if the ground below was exhaling? Like a ghost, did those breaths slide beneath her brother's door? When she finally opened the door, her brother's bed was empty. The impression of his body still clung to the white sheets. She screamed so loud that she shook the ground. The policeman came but found nothing. All the doors were still locked, and the snow outside his window was undisturbed. Two days later, when the snow all melted, the signs of its passing were evident. The saturated mud sucked at each footstep. Branches lay cast down and broken. Bent stick arms held a carrot nose, and two wet coal eyes where a snowman had been. And reaching out like a crooked finger from the old woman's window toward the little girl's house, was a single deep impression, as if an insect's tunnel had collapsed beneath the lawn. The little girl's parents gathered the neighbors, and they rang the old woman's doorbell. They banged on the windows. They broke down the door. They went into her basement, and in it found neither bricks nor concrete, only a pit of raw, dark soil and a now-filled-in hole. It was possible, the detectives later said. She had been inside when the weight of the late winter snow had weakened the ground above. When it thawed, of course, she would have been stuck. The policeman came again and dug up the yard, but found neither bodies nor bones. There was nothing below. The little girl's brother was never found. But the old woman still lived, though not in her house. Trapped in the sopping tunnel, she dug further until she lost her way. Her full belly dragged as her wicked nails carved deeper and deeper, but she grew leaner and leaner the deeper she dug. The torn flesh of her face pulled away further as the rocks tugged at the muscles and chipped her teeth away. Her yellow eyes turned black with the grit, then red, and then she cried thick, dark tears. She might have wandered forever, but she came across the house buried in the dirt, her fingers scrabbled on the rooftop slate, so up to the apex she squirmed. 
she squeezed herself into the chimney. Finally, she emerged from the fireplace, blacker than night. Pressed beside the hearth, she watched as another old woman shuffled into the living room with a pitcher of glowing green soil half-lighting her way. A little pink boy squirmed in the corner. The doddering old woman, unaware of the hidden one, sat down on her couch and began to tell the boy stories. As the hidden woman crouched in the corner, she listened to the stories, and then she heard it. She knew. The boy in the stories, the one in the house, the one here beneath the ground, he must be hers. Now she knew they could make a home again. They could be together forever. She was so happy to be reunited that she could just eat him up. But not yet. Not like this. The hidden woman rose slowly. As she unfolded herself, the last tatters of her flesh fell away. Raw and naked, she crept into the kitchen. She dug her nails into the wall's peeling plaster and drew herself high into the corner like a spider. She licked her crooked teeth and waited. Later, as the boy slept, the storyteller rose from his side. The hidden woman counted the unsteady footsteps and watched the spill of the pitcher's trembling light approach the kitchen. She held her breath and waited. She dropped like a shadow from the ceiling. Later, for a while, she was full again and happy. She dressed herself anew in old skins, and, except for the rips by the eyes and mouth, the face she wore didn't even look like a mask. She kept feeding the boy, though, letting him sleep and grow heavy. One way or another, they would be together forever. Until one night, the worms began to sing. Outside, the worms are singing. The little ones are chirping like alarms, like mother whales, eyeless. The giant ones call out to their lost calf. They cut through the soil's abysmal pressure in the exercise of something deeper than instinct. Their songs echo from every corner, as if they are drawing the knot of all their tunnels tighter toward the house at the center. The boy will not stop crying, and so the old woman sighs, and from within the folds of her dress she pulls a kitchen knife. She draws the blade across her mouth, cheek to cheek, and peels back the skin of her lips. Her chipped and crooked teeth glow green in the soil light and set every shape and shadow trembling. I'll never let you go again, she whispers. I love you so. She rests a hand against his soft pink skin, pulling his head back to expose his throat. Instead of falling silent, though, the boy wails, and the piercing tone from his quivering lips melds with the tremors from beyond the walls into a twisting harmony. For a moment, their music intertwines, and the whole house hums. The old woman fumbles her hand to cover his mouth and smother his song. But it is too late. The house's front wall shudders beneath a heavy blow. The door bursts open.
That was Gordon B. White's We Eat Dirt and Sleep and Wait, as read by Emily Strand. Emily Strand is a writer, musician, and college professor living in Ohio who really enjoys robots. You can connect with her on her website or Twitter. Links in the show notes. Thank you, Emily. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Our second story this evening, you guessed it, is the fourth and final entry of Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Arthur Machen was a Welsh author and mystic of the 1890s and early 20th century. He is best known for his influential supernatural, fantasy, and horror fiction. His novella, The Great God Pan, has garnered a reputation as a classic of horror, with Stephen King describing it as maybe the best horror story in the English language. And now, children of the night, the conclusion to Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan. Seven, the Encounter in Soho Three weeks later, Austin received a note from Villiers, asking him to call either that afternoon or the next. He chose the nearer date and found Villiers sitting as usual by the window, apparently lost in meditation on the drowsy traffic of the street. There was a bamboo table by his side a fantastic thing, enriched with gilding and queer painted scenes. And on it lay a little pile of papers arranged and docketed as neatly as anything in Mr. Clark's office. Well, Villiers, have you made any discoveries in the last three weeks? I think so. I have here one of two memoranda which struck me as singular, and there is a statement to which I shall call your attention. 
and these documents relate to Mrs. Beaumont. It was really Crashaw whom you saw standing on the doorstep of the house in Ashley Street. As to that matter, my belief remains unchanged, but neither my inquiries nor their results have any special relation to Crashaw. But my investigations have had a strange issue. I have found out who Mrs. Beaumont is. Who is she? In what way do you mean? I mean that you and I know her better under another name. What name is that? Herbert. Herbert. Austin repeated the word, dazed with astonishment. Yes, Mrs. Herbert of Paul Street. Helen Vaughan of earlier adventures unknown to me. You had reason to recognize the expression of her face. When you go home, look at the face in Merrick's Book of Horrors, and you will know the sources of your recollection. And you have proof of this? Yes, the best of proof. I have seen Mrs. Beaumont, or shall we say Mrs. Herbert? Where did you see her? Hardly in a place where you would expect to see a lady who lives in Ashley Street, Piccadilly. I saw her entering a house in one of the meanest and most disreputable streets in Soho. In fact, I had made an appointment, though not with her, and she was precise to both time and place. All this seems very wonderful, but I cannot call it incredible. You must remember, Villiers, that I have seen this woman in the ordinary adventure of London society, talking and laughing and sipping her coffee in a commonplace drawing-room with commonplace people. But you know what you are saying. I do. I have not allowed myself to be led by surmises or fancies. It was with no thought of finding Helen Vaughan that I searched for Mrs. Beaumont in the dark waters of the life of London. But such has been the issue. You must have been in strange places, Villiers. Yes, I have been in very strange places. It would have been useless, you know, to go to Ashley Street and ask Mrs. Beaumont to give me a short sketch of her previous history. No, assuming as I had to assume that her record was not of the cleanest, it would be pretty certain that at any previous time she must have moved in circles not quite so refined as the present ones. If you see mud at the top of a stream, you may be sure that it was once at the bottom. I went to the bottom. I have always been fond of diving into Queer Street for my amusement, and I found my knowledge of that locality and its inhabitants very useful. It is, perhaps, needless to say that my friends had never heard the name of Beaumont, and as I had never seen the lady and was quite unable to describe her, I had to set to work in an indirect way. The people there know me, I have been able to do some of them a service now and again, so they made no difficulty about giving their information. They were aware I had no communication, direct or indirect, with Scotland Yard. I had to cast out a good many lines, though, before I got what I wanted, and when I landed the fish I did not for a moment suppose it was my fish. I listened to what I was told, out of a constitutional liking for useless information and I found myself in possession of a very curious story, though, as I imagined, not the story I was looking for. It was to this effect, some five or six years ago, a woman named Raymond suddenly made her appearance in the neighborhood to which I am referring, 
She was described to me as being quite young, probably not more than seventeen or eighteen, very handsome, and looking as if she came from the country. I should be wrong in saying that she found her level in going to this particular quarter, or associating with these people, for from what I was told, I should think the worst den in London far too good for her. The person from whom I got my information, as you may suppose, no great Puritan, shuddered and grew sick in telling me of the nameless infamies which were laid to her charge. After living there for a year, or perhaps a little more, she disappeared as suddenly as she came, and they saw nothing of her till about the time of the Paul Street case. At first she came to her old haunts only occasionally, then more frequently and finally took up her abode there as before, and remained for six or eight months. It's of no use my going into details as to the life the woman led. If you want particulars, you can look at Meyrick's legacy. Those designs were not drawn from his imagination. She again disappeared, and the people of the place saw nothing of her till a few months ago. My informant told me that she had taken some rooms in a house, which he pointed out, and these rooms she was in the habit of visiting two or three times a week, and always at ten in the morning. I was led to expect that one of these visits would be paid on a certain day about a week ago, and I accordingly managed to be on the lookout in company with my Cicerone at a quarter to ten, and the hour and the lady came with equal punctuality. My friend and I were standing under an archway, a little way back from the street, but she saw us, and gave me a glance that I shall be long in forgetting. That look was quite enough for me. I knew Miss Raymond to be Mrs. Herbert. As for Mrs. Beaumont, she had quite gone out of my head. She went into the house, and I watched it till four o'clock when she came out, and then I followed her. It was a long chase, and I had to be very careful to keep a long way in the background, and yet not lose sight of the woman. She took me down to the Strand, and then to Westminster, and then up St. James's Street, and along Piccadilly. I felt queerish when I saw her turn up Ashley Street. The thought that Mrs. Herbert was Mrs. Beaumont came into my mind, but it seemed too impossible to be true. I waited at the corner, keeping my eye on her all the time, and I took particular care to note the house at which she stopped. It was the house with the gay curtains, the home of flowers, the house out of which Crashaw came the night he hanged himself in his garden. I was just going away with my discovery when I saw an empty carriage come round and draw up in front of the house. I came to the conclusion that Mrs. Herbert was going out for a drive, and I was right. There, as it happened, I met a man I know, and we stood talking together a little distance from the carriageway, to which I had my back. We had not been there for ten minutes when my friend took off his hat, and I glanced round and saw the lady I had been following all day. Who is that? I said and his answer was, Mrs. Beaumont lives in Ashley Street. Of course there could be no doubt after that. I don't know whether she saw me, but I don't think she did. I went home at once, and on consideration I thought that I had a sufficiently good case with which to go to Clark. 
But why to Clark? Because I am sure that Clark is in possession of facts about this woman, facts of which I know nothing. Well, what then? Mr. Villiers leaned back in his chair and looked reflectively at Austin for a moment before he answered. My idea was that Clark and I should call on Mrs. Beaumont. You would never go into such a house as that. No, no, Villiers, you cannot do it. Besides, consider what result I will tell you soon. But I was going to say that my information does not end here. It has been completed in an extraordinary manner. Look at this neat little packet of manuscript. It is paginated, you see, and I have indulged in the civil coquetry of a ribbon of red tape. It is almost a legal air, hasn't it? Run your eye over it, Austin. It is an account of the entertainment Mrs. Beaumont provided for her choicer guests. The man who wrote this escaped with his life, but I do not think he will live many years. The doctors tell me he must have sustained some severe shock to the nerves. Austin took the manuscript, but never read it. Opening the neat pages at haphazard, his eye was caught by a word and a phrase that followed it, and sick at heart, with white lips and a cold sweat pouring like water from his temples, he flung the paper down. Take it away, Villiers. Never speak of this again. Are you made of stone, man? Why, the dread and horror of death itself, the thoughts of the man who stands in the keen morning air on the black platform, bound, the bell tolling in his ears, and waits for the harsh rattle of the bolt, or as nothing compared to this. I will not read it, or should never sleep again. Very good. I can fancy what you say. Yes, it is horrible enough, but after all, it is an old story. An old mystery played in our day, and in dim London streets instead of amidst the vineyards and the olive gardens. We know what happened to those who chanced to meet the great god Pan, and those who are wise know that all symbols are symbols of something, not of nothing. It was, indeed, an exquisite symbol beneath which men long ago veiled their knowledge of the most awful, most secret forces which lie at the heart of all things. Forces before which the souls of men must wither and die and blacken, as their bodies blacken under the electric current. Such forces cannot be named, cannot be spoken, cannot be imagined, except under a veil and a symbol, a symbol to the most of us, appearing a quaint, poetic fancy, to some a foolish tale. But you and I— and all events have known something of the terror that may dwell in this secret place of life, manifested under human flesh, that which is without form taking to itself a form. Oh, Austin, how can it be? How is it that the very sunlight does not turn to blackness before this thing, the hard earth melt and boil beneath such a burden? Villiers was pacing up and down the room, and the beads of sweat stood out on his forehead. Austin sat silent for a while, but Villiers saw him make a sign upon his breast. I say again, Villiers, you will surely never enter such a house as that. You would never pass out alive. 
Yes, Austin. I shall go out alive. I and Clark with me. What do you mean? You cannot. You would not dare. Wait a moment. The air was very pleasant and fresh this morning. There was a breeze blowing, even through this dull street, and I thought I would take a walk. Piccadilly stretched before me a clear, bright vista, and the sun flashing on the carriages and on the quivering leaves in the park. It was a joyous morning, and men and women looked at the sky and smiled as they went about their work or their pleasure, and the wind blew as blithely upon the meadows and the scented gorse. But somehow or other I got out of the bustle and the gaiety and found myself walking slowly along a quiet, dull street, where there seemed to be no sunshine and no air, and where the few foot-passengers loitered as they walked and hung indecisively about corners and archways. I walked along, hardly knowing where I was going or what I did there, but feeling impelled, as one sometimes is, to explore still further, with a vague idea of reaching some unknown goal. Thus I forged up the street, noting the small traffic of the milk shop and wondering at the incongruous medley of penny-pipes, black tobacco, sweets, newspapers, and comic songs, which here and there jostled one another in the short compass of a single window. I think it was a cold shudder that suddenly passed through me that first told me that I had found what I wanted. I looked up from the pavement and stopped before a dusty shop, above which the lettering had faded where the red bricks of two hundred years ago had grimed to black, where the windows had gathered to themselves the dust of winters innumerable. I saw what I required, but I think it was five minutes before I had steadied myself and could walk in and ask for it in a cool voice and with a calm face. I think there must even have been a tremor in my words— for the old man who came out of the black parlour and fumbled slowly amongst his goods looked oddly at me as he tied the parcel. I paid what he asked and stood leaning by the counter, with a strange reluctance to take up my goods and go. I asked about the business, and learnt that trade was bad and the profits cut down sadly, but then the street was not what it was before traffic had been diverted but that was done forty years ago, just before my father died, he said. I got away at last and walked along sharply. It was a dismal street indeed, and I was glad to return to the bustle and the noise. Would you like to see my purchase? Austin said nothing, but nodded his head slightly. He still looked white and sick. Villiers pulled out a drawer in the bamboo table and showed Austin a long coil of cord hard and new, and at one end was a running noose. "'It is the best hempen cord,' said Villiers. "'Just as it used to be made for the old trade,' the man told me. "'Not an inch of jute from end to end.' Austin set his teeth hard and stared at Villiers, growing whiter as he looked. "'You would not do it,' he murmured at last. You would not have blood on your hands. My God! he exclaimed with sudden vehemence. You cannot mean this, Villiers, that you will make yourself a hangman. No, 
I shall offer a choice, and leave Helen Vaughn alone with this cord, and a locked room for fifteen minutes. If, when we go in, and it is not done, I shall call the nearest policeman. That is all. I must go now. I cannot stay here any longer. I cannot bear this. Good night. Good night, Austin. The door shut, but in a moment it was open again, and Austin stood, white and ghastly, in the entrance. I was forgetting, he said, that I, too, have something to tell you. I have received a letter from Dr. Harding in Buenos Aires. He says that he attended Mayrick for three weeks before his death. And does he say what carried him off in the prime of his life? Was it not fever? No, it was not fever. According to the doctor, it was an utter collapse of the whole system, probably caused by some severe shock. But he states that the patient would tell him nothing, and that he was consequently at some disadvantage in treating the case. Is there anything more? Yes. Dr. Harding ends his letter by saying, I think this is all the information I can give you about your poor friend. He had not been long in Buenos Aires, and knew scarcely anyone, with the exception of a person who did not bear the best of characters, and has since left, a Mrs. Vaughan. 8. The Fragments Amongst the papers of the well-known physician, Dr. Robert Matheson of Ashley Street, Piccadilly, who died suddenly of apoplectic seizure at the beginning of 1892, a leaf of manuscript paper was found, covered with pencil jottings. These notes were in Latin, much abbreviated, and had evidently been made in great haste. The manuscript was only deciphered with difficulty, and some words have up to the present time evaded all the efforts of the expert employed. The date, XXV, July, 1888, is written on the right-hand corner of the manuscript. The following is a translation of Dr. Matheson's manuscript. Whether science would benefit by these brief notes if they could be published, I do not know, but rather doubt. But certainly I shall never take the responsibility of publishing or divulging one word of what is here written, not only on account of my oath given freely to those two persons who were present, but also because the details are too abominable. It is probably that, upon mature consideration, and after waiting the good and evil, I shall one day destroy this paper, or at least leave it under seal to my friend D., trusting in his discretion, to use it or to burn it, as he may think fit. As was befitting, I did all that my knowledge suggested to make sure that I was suffering under no delusion. At first astounded, I could hardly think, but in a minute's time I was sure that my pulse was steady and regular, and that I was in my real and true senses. I then fixed my eyes quietly on what was before me. Though horror and revolting nausea rose up within me, and an odor of corruption choked my breath, I remained firm. I was then privileged, or accursed, I dare not say which, to see that which was on the bed, lying there black like ink, transformed before my eyes. 
the skin and the flesh and the muscles and the bones and the firm structure of the human body that I had thought to be unchangeable and permanent as adamant began to melt and dissolve. I know that the body may be separated into its elements by external agencies, but I should have refused to believe what I saw. For here there was some internal force, of which I knew nothing, that caused dissolution and change. Here, too, was all the work by which man had been made repeated before my eyes. I saw the form waver from sex to sex, dividing itself from itself, and then again reunited. Then I saw the body descend to the beasts whence it ascended, and that which was on the heights go down to the depths, even to the abyss of all being. The principle of life which makes organism always remained, while the outward form changed. The light within the room had turned to blackness, not the darkness of night in which objects are seen dimly, for I could see clearly and without difficulty. But it was the negation of light. Objects were presented to my eyes, if I may say so, without any medium, in such a manner that if there had been a prism in the room I should have seen no colors represented in it. I watched, and at last I saw nothing but a substance's jelly. Then the ladder was ascended again. Here the manuscript is illegible. For one instance I saw a form, shaped in dimness before me, which I, which I will not farther describe. But the symbol of this form may be seen in ancient sculptures and in paintings which survived beneath the lava too foul to be spoken of, as a horrible and unspeakable shape, neither man nor beast was changed into human form. There came finally death. I, who saw all this, not without great horror and loathing of soul, here write my name, declaring all that I have set on this paper to be true. Robert Matheson Medical Doctor Such, Raymond, is the story of what I know and what I have seen. The burden of it was too heavy for me to bear alone, and yet I could tell it to none but you. Villiers, who was with me at the last, knows nothing of that awful secret of the wood, of how what we both saw die lay upon the smooth, sweet turf amidst the summer flowers half in sun and half in shadow, and holding the girl Rachel's hand, called and summoned those companions and shaped in solid form upon the earth we tread upon, the horror which we can but hint at, which we can only name under a figure. I would not tell Villiers of this, nor of that resemblance which struck me as with a blow upon my heart when I saw the portrait which filled the cup of terror at the end. What this can mean I dare not guess. I know that what I saw perish was not Mary, and yet in the last agony Mary's eyes looked into mine. Whether there can be any one who can show the last link in this chain of awful mystery, I do not know. But if there be any one who can do this, you, Raymond, are the man, and if you know the secret, it rests with you to tell it, or not, as you please. I am writing this letter to you immediately on my getting back to town. 
I have been in the country for the last few days. Perhaps you may be able to guess in which part. While the horror and wonder of London was at its height, for Miss Beaumont, as I have told you, was well known in society, I wrote to my friend Dr. Phillips, giving him some brief outline, or rather hint, of what happened, and asking him to tell me the name of the village where the events he had related to me occurred. He gave me the name, he said with the less hesitation, because Rachel's father and mother were dead, and the rest of the family had gone to a relative in the state of Washington six months before. The parents, he said, had undoubtedly died of grief and horror caused by the terrible death of their daughter, and by what had gone before that death. On the evening of the day which I received Philip's letter, I was at Care, Maine, and standing beneath the moldering Roman walls, white with the winters of seventeen hundred years, I looked over the meadow where once had stood the old temple of the God of the Deeps, and saw a house gleaming in the sunlight. It was the house where Helen had lived. I stayed at Kermaine for several days. The people of the place, I found, knew little and had guessed less. Those whom I spoke to on the matter seemed surprised that an antiquarian, as I professed myself to be, should trouble about a village tragedy of which they gave a very commonplace version, and, as you may imagine, I told nothing of what I knew. Most of my time was spent in the great woods that rises just above the village and climbs the hillside and goes down to the river in the valley. Such another long, lovely valley, Raymond, as that on which we looked one summer night, walking to and fro before your house. For many an hour I strayed through the maze of the forest, turning now to right and now to left, pacing slowly down long alleyways of undergrowth, shadowy and chill, even under the midday sun and halting beneath great oaks, lying on the short turf of a clearing where the faint sweet scent of wild roses came to me on the wind, and mixed with the heavy perfume of the elder, whose mingled odour is like the odour of the room of the dead, a vapour of incense and corruption. I stood at the edges of the wood, gazing at all the pomp and procession of the foxgloves towering amidst the bracken and shining red in the broad sunshine, and beyond them into deep thickets of close undergrowth, where springs boil up from the rock and nourish the water weeds, dank and evil. But in all my wanderings I avoided one part of the wood. It was not till yesterday that I climbed to the summit of the hill, and stood upon the ancient Roman road that threads the highest ridge of the wood. Here they had walked, Helen and Rachel, along this quiet causeway, upon the pavement of green turf, shut in on either side by high banks of red earth and tall hedges of shining beech. And here I followed in their steps, looking out now and again through partings in the boughs and seeing on one side the sweeps of the wood stretching far to right and left, and sinking into the broad level, and beyond, the yellow sea, and the land over the sea. On the other side was the valley, and the river, and hill following hill as wave on wave, and wood and meadow and cornfield, and white houses gleaming, and a great wall of mountain, and far blue peaks in the north, and so at last I came to the place. The track went up a gentle slope and widened out into an open space, 
with a wall of thick undergrowth around it, and then, narrowing again, passed on into the distance and the faint blue mist of summer heat. And into this pleasant summer glade, Rachel passed a girl, and left it, who shall we say what? I did not stay there long. In a small town near Care, Maine, there is a museum containing, for the most part, Roman remains which have been found in the neighborhood at various times. On the day after my arrival at Care, Maine, I walked over to the town in question and took the opportunity of inspecting the museum. After I had seen most of the sculptured stones, the coffins, rings, coins, and fragments of tessellated pavement which the place contains, I was shown a small square pillar of white stone, which had been recently discovered in the wood of which I have been speaking, and, as I found on inquiry, in that open space where the Roman road broadens out. On one side of the pillar was an inscription of which I took note. Some of the letters have been defaced, but I do not think there can be any doubt as to those which I supply. The inscription is as follows. To the great god Nodens, the god of the great deep or abyss, Flavius Senilis has erected this pillar on account of the marriage which he saw beneath the shade. The custodian of the museum informed me that the local antiquaries were much puzzled, not by the inscription or by any difficulty in translating it, but as to the circumstance or right to which allusion is made. And now, my dear Clark, as to what you tell me about Helen Vaughan, whom you say you saw die under circumstances of the utmost and almost incredible horror, I was interested in your account, but a good deal, nay, all, of what you told me I already knew. I can understand the strange likeness you remarked in both the portrait and in the actual face. You have seen Helen's mother. You remember that still summer night so many years ago, when I talked to you of the world beyond the shadows and of the god Pan. You remember Mary. She was the mother of Helen Vaughan, who was born nine months after that night. Mary never recovered her reason. She lay, as you saw her, all the while upon her bed, and a few days after the child was born, she died. I fancy that just at the last she knew me. I was standing by the bed, and the old look came into her eyes for a second, and then she shuddered and groaned and died. It was an ill work I did that night when you were present. I broke open the door of the house of life, without knowing or caring what might pass forth or enter in. I recollect your telling me at the time, sharply enough, and rightly too, in one sense, that I had ruined the reason of a human being by a foolish experiment based on an absurd theory. You did well to blame me, but my theory was not all absurdity. What I said Mary would see she saw. But I forgot that no human eyes can look on such a sight with impunity. And I forgot, as I have just said, that when the house of life is thus thrown open, there may enter in that for which we have no name, 
and human flesh may become the veil of a horror one dare not express. I played with energies which I did not understand. You have seen the ending of it. Helen Vaughn did well to bind the cord about her neck and die, though the death was horrible. The blackened face, the hideous form upon the bed, changing and melting before your eyes, from woman to man, from man to beast, and from beast to worse than beast. All the strange horror that you witness surprises me but little. What you say the doctor whom you sent for saw and shuddered at, I noticed long ago. I knew what I had done the moment the child was born, and when it was scarcely five years old, I surprised it, not once or twice, but several times with a playmate. You may guess of what kind. It was for me a constant, an incarnate horror, and after a few years I felt I could bear it no more, and I sent Helen Vaughan away. You know now what frightened the boy in the wood. The rest of the strange story, and all else that you tell me, as discovered by your friend, I have contrived to learn from time to time, almost to the last chapter. And now, Helen is with her companions. That was Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan, as read by me. As usual, link to my personal page is in the show notes. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editor, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we haunt your dreams with more. Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 